So before we get started, uh, if you would join with me in saying just a brief prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that your spirit would be poured out on us. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and ears and a heart to receive your word. Lord, I pray more than anything that you would speak clearly and plainly and truthfully through me. And we ask all of this in your glorious son, Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if I were to ask you what your initial thought is when you hear the word worship, what would you say, right? So for me, I'm reminded of my early days after coming to know Christ. And so I was in my early 20s. This is around probably the early 2000s. And a buddy of mine and and I, we were trying to find a church to, to be a part of. And so we were visiting all these churches in the area, and the one thing that we found to be pretty consistent is that in in all the churches, um, I just didn't know what to do with that whole singing thing. It was just really awkward for me. And what made it even more difficult is, so early 2000s, so most of the worship music was kind of in that cheesy 80s vibe. You know what I'm talking about, like the kind of music that makes the perfect soundtrack for a Mr. Bean episode. And, and so I, I would just, like, I would just show up late. I didn't know what to do with that whole mess. And I realized, like, I've offended some of you because you're like, I like 80s music. And I'm sorry, you know, but to be fair, like, it's not my fault that you have bad taste in music. <laughs> so I just didn't know what to do with that. It was just really bad music, and, and I would just show up late just to miss that whole mess awkward. But over time, my understanding of what worship is grew and changed. I began to understand that worship isn't just the singing bits, and it's actually the whole of life. And I also began to to understand and appreciate and cherish why we gather together to sing and to hear God's word and, and and to praise God on a regular basis as the church like we're doing this morning. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss what it means to be a family that worships. We're going to look at the foundation of worship, which is God's sovereign work to bring about a people, to save and redeem a people for himself as a gift to Jesus Christ, which is called the church. And we're also going to draw out two implications from this, talking about what it means to be the church and to worship when we're gathered and when we're scattered. You ready? I'm excited. All right, so... Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, as you come to him, so we put in brackets there Jesus, because that's the him that Peter is speaking about, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we see in this text that through Jesus, God is building up a family for himself, and that is the church. You are being built up as a spiritual house. Now the word there that's translated as house is actually a Greek term called oikos. But the reason I highlight this is because the way the New Testament uses the word house is the same way that we today use the word family. So like if you were to do a search through the New Testament, you look for the word house or household, and you see how it's used, you'd say, oh yeah, today we would say family. So God is building up a spiritual house. God is building up a church that is the family of God. And this is what we looked at last week. So for example, last week, Pastor Jeff talked about how we are the family of God. 
that all who are in Christ are children of God. We have been adopted as sons and daughters, restored to God, who is our Father, and we are one spiritual household in Christ. Look with me. Um, well, we're going to look at verse 5, and what we're going to focus on today is the implication of what it means to be a family that worships. Look at verse 5. He says that we are a holy priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices. So when you hear the word priest, if you're like me, what we tend to do is we tend to think of what the priests did. Well, they were an officiant, they were in the temple, you know, if you're thinking Old Testament and they did all the work, or if you come out of maybe a Catholic background, the priest is the one who stands up there and kind of officiates the service, right? We, we, we tend to think of them in what they, what they do or what they did and, and the role that they served. But one of the things we tend to overlook is what the priest, especially in the Old Testament, symbolized. The priest symbolizes one who dwells in the very presence of God. Does that make sense? So there's what they did, but what they stood for, what they symbolized as, was as one who stood in the presence of God. This is why, for example, in the Old Testament, it was the high priest and only the high priest who could enter into the Holy of Holies, where God's very presence dwelt. And so when Peter calls us a holy priesthood, what he's saying is that we are those who dwell with God. Or, or, or better framed, we are those whom God has chosen to dwell with. So we have to keep this frame of reference of what the priests kind of symbolized and, what they, and who they were in terms of their association with God and abiding in God's presence when, when we think about this. Because what it helps us to see is that worship is fundamentally, fundamentally about a relationship or communion with God. It's not what we do, but it's who we are in relation to God. It is the fact that God is making a house for himself, redeeming, restoring, adopting sons and daughters, and we, as the priesthood of God, are those who dwell with God, and God dwells with us. Amen. Like, that's good news. You see, worship isn't just a thing that we do. It's not meant to be just a part of our life, but rather the whole of our life. And, and if I were to describe what does this mean if we think of it in terms of communion, connection, relationship with God, dwelling in God's presence, then worship is how our lives are shaped by our ongoing walk or relationship with God. And this isn't a new idea in the New Testament. So, for example, if you were to ever read through the Old Testament, most people get all gung-ho in January. They're like, I'm going to do the Through the Bible reading plan. And you do Genesis, Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, I'm done. Because Leviticus is a bunch of what? Laws and codes and regulations, ordering worship, right? And you're just like, ah, I'm skipping this section. But here's the thing. What we miss is that the reason God gave all these laws that governed all of life is because all of life is to be governed by who? God. Well, it's, the law is actually taught that worship is all of life. But why worship God, right? Why devote ourselves to him? Why be about Jesus and obey him rather than do what I want? I mean, it's a legitimate question. And so the short answer is, well, it's because it's what you're made for. So here's an example. If we were hanging out and I said, hey, I've got an idea. This is going to be fun. Get in the car. So you get in my car and we go for a drive. And I pull up on the edge of a cliff. And I'm like, you ready? You're thinking, ready for what? And I'm like, this is going to be exciting. Just put your seatbelt on. All good. We're gonna and I start to back the car up. 
And I'm like, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna punch this thing. We're gonna get to 60, maybe 80 miles an hour. We're gonna go flying off the cliff. What are you gonna do at that point? I'm getting out of the car, right? Why? Because cars don't fly. They're not designed to go off a cliff. Now, here's the thing. Could it be fun and exciting? I mean, initially, yeah. There's going to be a big rush flying off the cliff, feeling that free fall like a bird. You know? So initially, it's a good time. But the ending, not so much, right? And so in the same way we can look at a car and say, a car is not designed to do that, so don't do that with a car. You have a specific design as well. And that design, as one who bears God's image, is to dwell with God, to worship God. So, you can live your life however you see fit. But what if all your efforts to to do things your way, irrespective of who God is and what God might have for you and desire for you, is you in the car driving off the cliff? Look back with me at 1 Peter. Verses 6 through 8. And here we're going to see kind of this, design, this, this, this idea of this design, what we're designed for in, in respect to Jesus kind of come to the forefront. Beginning in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, and again brackets, this is Jesus we're talking about again, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. So if we were to summarize kind of what the big idea that that Peter's trying to help us see here, it's this, that at the center of all of creation is Jesus and God's purpose to build his family on, through, and for him. At the center of all of creation is Jesus. Look at verse 6, right? What does it say? As it stands in Scripture. And and, and really this is shorthand for God. um, Rather, this is shorthand to say God planned purpose and decided and determined long ago that he would do this. Does that make sense? It's a shorthand way, biblically, of it to say, yeah, this is something God has had planned since before the foundation of the world itself. And we're being told that Jesus, right, I always get confused because you go right to the left, so i got to go the opposite direction, was, is, and always will be the center of all things. I know that's bad news for some of us because we're like, dang it, I thought it was about me, right? But it's not. The universe doesn't exist for you or for me. It exists for who? Let's say, let's say it. What's his name? It's a Sunday school answer. Come on, we can do this. The universe and all that exists, including us, is for? Close. Jesus. Jesus. He's the center of all things. And everything else is measured in relationship to him. We see this, for example, in verse, uh, verses 7 and 8. Those who are with him will never be put to what? Shame. And those who reject him will stumble. That's the car off the cliff. Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of Luke. 
And this is from, if you want to write it down, look it up later. It's, it's Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 26. I'm just going to read this. If you need to close your eyes, I want you to hear these words. These are from Jesus himself. Well, the whole of Scripture is from Jesus. But he says, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So let me ask you this. If you're here this morning and you would, and you would say, I know Jesus Christ, you profess a faith in Christ, I would ask you this. Is the whole of your life, is the whole of your life unified around Jesus in a posture, right, a heart posture of worship? Jesus is the ordering center of your life. Everything else orbits around Jesus. Your priorities, your relationships, your work, your school, your money, your sex life, everything in your life is subservient to Christ, Jesus, and who he is and his will for your life. His commands take priority over your wants and desires. Or do you live a divided life? Do you live a divided life? Like Jesus, yeah, you, he's, he's part of your life, but admittedly he comes in second to some other things. And it's not all the time, but it's some of the time, and it's enough of the time that you right now would say, yeah, that's kind of true of me. You have a divided heart. The commands of God, Jesus' commands, give way in certain times and places and instances to what you want and desire. Make sense? Worship is about having a unified life of worship where Jesus is at the center. So, for example, this is why Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he's not saying you're going to keep my commandments to prove that you love me. He's just saying that the overflow of a life that truly loves me is one who seeks to keep my commandments. And please don't hear this as being like it's going to be a perfect, perfect thing. Like any, anyone in here, want to? if I pass around a list, you're going to sign the list saying, I'm perfect, I got this all together, Right? No, we're not perfect. We need grace. We need mercy. So it's not getting at perfection, but what it's getting at is that the life of a disciple of Jesus who loves Jesus should be marked by a worshipful heart centered around Christ and his will and desires and commands for our lives as his brothers and sisters and as children of our Heavenly Father because we are a family that worships. So what does our worship look like? Look with me at 1 Peter again, and as we close, and I use that word loosely because we've still got a little while to go. I'll get you out before dinner. Um, we're going to discuss two important ways that we worship as the family of God. So look back at 1 Peter, beginning in verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I want to highlight something about this section, and I want you to notice the corporate nature of the language. Chosen race, 
holy nation, people for his own possession. So you notice how the language that he's using is, is, is broader than a single person or an individual. He's talking about us collectively as the corporate body of Christ, as the church. And so as the family of God, we worship together. We worship together as a family. We are to proclaim his excellencies. He has called us and shown us mercy, so we gather as God's children, as the family of God, to praise, to worship, to sing. And one of the key ways we do this um, is through the regular gathering in the weekly sense as the church. Now this, this practice of gathering as God's family, as God's people to worship, it's not, um, it's not a new thing. And, and you find its origins way back in the Old Testament where various uh, practices were adopted over time. So for example, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll see the, the earliest uh, expressions of, of this is they would gather to hear from the Lord and then they would offer sacrifices. Over time, as God's word was recorded and written down and, we, and, and the scriptures were being created, the scriptures and the reading of the scriptures were incorporated into the worship services. And then as well, songs were written. And one of the earliest songs, I think, I'm probably wrong on this. Actually, the first song is when Adam praises God for, for Eve. But then if you go, for example, into the book of Exodus, you'll see that Moses and, and the people of God, they sing. They, they respond in song when God saves them from the, the Egyptian army. But I think the best example you'll find in the Bible is the book of Psalms. These are songs, many written by King David, that were incorporated into the, the practice of worship of God's people. And there's obviously a lot of development kind of throughout the history of God's people that we see in the Bible that we can't really go into detail because we don't have time to cover this morning. But there's one key thing, one important thing I want us to grasp, and it's that God's, rather, God's people gathering corporately to worship is not an insignificant thing. It's not kind of a throwaway. I mean, it's popular to think that it doesn't really matter if I go to church. It's like, no, but you are the church, and the church is not just you, but we and if you, as a member of the church, do not gather in some capacity with other members of the church in worship, you're missing out on a way that God has called us as his people to engage and walk with him. Because from the Exodus on, book of Exodus on, it's very clear that corporate worship has always been a key rhythm in the life of God's people. So making this practical for us and for you, what I wanted to do it's kind of answered the question, why do we do what we do as King's Chapel in our corporate worship? So you got your bulletin? Pull this thing out. I want to highlight a few things. Because the basic elements or structure or order of our corporate worship are meant to reflect God's relation to us in light of the gospel. So I'm going to show you how this, how this theme kind of ties all these things together. So call to worship. Why is there a call to worship? Well, who is the one who initiates? God. God initiates. God calls. God proclaims, manifests, reveals himself, and calls his people to gather before him. So in the gospel, right, God calls to his people. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. Right? So God calls, and we respond, and we gather before God, we come into his presence. But as we do that, we oftentimes, if you've ever had an encounter 
or you become aware of this, what's the one thing that tends to happen when we start to think about God in, in relationship to us? Well, he is holy and I am not. And that causes fear and trepidation. And so that might cause us to what? To want to run away. And so look again. So there's a call and then what, what's the next step? There's a, a confession. A confession. Because we also know that God is merciful and kind and gracious. And he loves his people. And so as we come before God, we respond trusting in God's declaration that he loves us and we confess our sins. We confess our sins. What's the gospel? God calls, we respond in faith through repentance, confessing our sins. And then what's the next step? What does God do? He forgives because he's gracious and kind. And so we see an assurance, an assurance of God's grace, an assurance of God's mercy, an assurance of God's forgiveness and embrace of us as his Children, And because God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us of all sin, we take assurance from his word and his promises. And then there's an offering. Why do we do an offering? Well, Jeff, Pastor Jeff, is actually going to go into more detail about this in, in the coming weeks as part of the series. But one of the reasons that we give is because God, through Christ, has given us so much. And so out of a spirit of gratitude, we give back. Not because we have to, but because we want to. And, and in specific, one of the things I think this is important in relationship to the topic today, that we're a family that gathers to worship, is one of the things that your giving does is it, it pays for uh, expenses. Now, you have a family. We all come from families. And guess what every family tends to have? Expenses. And so out of your giving, you cover our bigger family expenses. Now, here's the thing. We're talking about our gathered worship still. Now, it'd be awesome. We could try this. I live in a two-bedroom apartment. It's about maybe 900 square foot, right? Look around. Do you think everyone in here could fit in my apartment? No. Like some of you are going to be like super uncomfortable because you're hanging out in my closet. Some of you are standing in the bathtub having to share the bathtub space with somebody being like, this is not working. So as God's family, local churches tend to grow. We tend to need to find spaces that can accommodate us. And your giving helps to afford us that ability to continue to gather as a family who worships. And then there's the sermon. Kind of what we're doing now. Maybe going well, maybe not, right? What is the sermon? Ultimately, the sermon is meant to be where we are sitting under and receiving from God's word, instruction, exhortation, encouragement, rebuke, etc. And so let's tie this back into the gospel. It's like, so God calls, we respond through repentance, Confessing sins, we receive God's forgiveness, his assurance of grace and embrace as our Heavenly Father. And a result of that, there's a spirit of gratitude. We want to give back to God, not because we have to, not because God is lacking of anything, not because he needs it, because he doesn't, because all things are his, but rather because we love him and we want to worship him. And then in line with that, we want to know and hear from our Father. So we sit under his word and we hear from God and we we seek to align our lives with his instruction. And then at the close of service, there's what? There's this thing called a benediction. Benediction is a blessing. It's a blessing. So why do we end with a blessing? Well, let's look at the gospel. It's like, so God calls and we hear, we come in repentance, confessing our sins. We receive assurance of faith, and, or not assurance of faith, but assurance of God's grace and embrace. Out of that, there's a spirit of gratitude. So we respond in, in worship, wanting to give back to God. We want to then sit under his word and to, and to know God and to walk with him and to be one with him, to dwell in his presence. 
So then as God's gathered people, when we leave, we end with a blessing because what is the point of the whole thing? We have been blessed. To be grabbed by God, claimed as his own, restored and redeemed and adopted as sons and daughters. And so we are blessed. The gospel ends with the blessing. I always think of the, the total tangent here. That Christmas movie, the blessing, right? What is it? Anyway, sorry, that's my brain. But the gospel ends with blessing. And so lastly, though, I want to I touch on the singing. Why, why, you know, there's this singing, it's kind of spread throughout the service. But in song, and, and, and where song becomes so critical, I think, is that it's a way for us to offer praise in a corporate and unified way. And we praise God for who he is and for what he's done. And it's not entertainment. And that's, that can be very confusing for us in this day and age because music is now something we consume. It's a commodity. But music is something unique to us as huma, huma, humanity, humans. I can always never say that word. It's unique to us as humans. And I think it's one of the most profound ways we collectively join our voices together in praise of God. And so song and singing is interspersed throughout our gathered time together. Make sense? But, here's the thing, we're only gathered together generally once a week. You know, sometimes more, but, but generally speaking, the rhythm is that we're gathered together once a week. So what about the rest of the week? What about Monday through Saturday? What do we do then? Look back at First Peter with me, verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So a couple comments here. Sojourners and exiles, we typically don't use that, those, those words today. But a sojourner is a traveler, and an exile is someone who is not in their home, nation, state, place. And so we as God's people, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. The world is not as it should be yet. God is still at work. There's still the fullness or the consummation, rather, of God's plan in Christ to redeem and restore the whole of creation. And that hasn't happened yet. And so until such time, we are not at home in the world. We live here. We're in it, but we're not of it. And then secondly, the, he uses the term Gentiles. And my guess is, most likely, the people that Peter were writing to, it was, it was a, a church primarily comprised of Jews. It was a Jewish church. And, and if you read the Old Testament, there's a term, it, it'll be, I think it's called goyim, but it, it just means nations or Gentiles. And, and so what he's saying is, as you live among the non-believers, the not-yet-believers... That's what he's getting at. So as the family of God, right, we worship corporately together, but we also worship individually throughout the week as we're dispersed or scattered among our lives. We worship in our homes. We worship in our places of work, in school, at restaurants, at grocery stores. When you're in line, you know, interacting with a clerk, there's, this makes sense. All of that is meant to come under, under this idea of everything that I do, I do for the glory of God. So all of life. 
And as a scattered church, we worship through our words and deeds before the watching world. And we are told, and this is that as we do these things, and, and this is where, um, how would I word this? This is where we see either our lives are unified around Jesus or divided and given over to our desires. This is the primary place you're going to see whether our lives are unified or divided. We're told to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep our conduct honorable. Paul says this better than anyone, the Apostle Paul. This is in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 24. So listen. He says, now the works of the flesh, works are passions that are being given over to, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do or practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Christian, what are you known for out among the watching world? What is the witness of your worship? Is your life unified around Jesus and bearing fruit of the Spirit? So that not just on Sundays, let's say, or when you're around other Christians, but when you're alone or by yourself and no one's looking, or when you're out in the world at work, at school, among friends, is your life unified in its worship of Jesus? Or are you divided by the passions and works of the flesh? Is your conduct honorable? So as we close, I want us to wrestle with this idea that we are the family of God. That brothers and sisters, you are the family of God. Of God. And as God's children, He calls us to gather before Him as one to sing praises and to worship Him like we do every Sunday. But He also calls us as His children to live lives of faithful obedience as we're scattered out there among the watching world. That our lives would be unified around Jesus, that He would be the center of our lives, and that our worship would give a consistent witness to all that would see because we keep our conduct honorable at all times for the sake of Christ who gave everything so that we might be called children of God. And listen, if it's, uh, and I'm not saying that we live lives of perfection. I'm not saying that, that you're ever going to get this being a disciple of Jesus thing completely right. And I'm not saying that if you're struggling with sin, that there's not grace for you because there is. But what I'm saying is if if you're giving yourself over to the passions and desires of the flesh, and Jesus doesn't even factor or figure into that, you should pause and ask yourself what's happening there. Why is your heart so divided? And how could you trample on the blood of Christ who gave his life and shed his blood and had his body broken and shamed for you? And if you're not a Christian, if you're like, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, you're here, you're just kind of kicking the tires on it, you're like, I'm not really sure. 
Like, I would implore you to continue to seek and search and ask hard questions about the things that you're living for because maybe you're in the car going off the cliff and you're having a great time right now. And it's all good, it's all exciting, but I promise you, there is an end that comes for all who reject Christ and it is not a good one. Because you were meant more, you were meant for more than the pleasures of this earth. You were meant for more than fulfilling fleeting desires. You were meant to know, to walk with, and to be loved and to love the God who created you. And it is through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ that we are united to our Father and that our sins are forgiven and that we are redeemed and restored and given a new life in Christ. And so if you're here this morning, you're like, you know, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. I'm just kicking the tires on the, you know, maybe I'm here because somebody dragged me. I just want to get out of here for lunch. Please continue to ask questions. Question yourself as much as you'd question me up here saying, hey, please consider this because maybe you're in that car and you're heading for the cliff. We are God's children and we worship him in, in truth and in, and in joy because he has claimed us as his own. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to live, die, and rise again on our behalf. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that you have called us to be your children, that you have poured out your grace on upon us. Lord, you have cleansed us and forgiven us of all sin. And Lord, out of a spirit of gratitude, we worship you. We praise you. We praise you when we're gathered. We praise you when we're scattered. And Lord, we, we trust you and entrust ourselves over to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.